Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is The Practice of Exile, about the life and work of Edward Said, author, literary critic, teacher, musician, public intellectual, and Palestinian-American. Our opening music is Movement 3 from Bach's Concerto for Piano and Orchestra, number 5 in F minor, performed by Glenn Gould, a favorite of Edward Said's and the subject of several of Said's essays. Notably, Glenn Gould, the virtuoso as intellectual, and the music itself, Glenn Gould's contrapuntal vision. The pieces we'll hear were chosen by Gould for use in the soundtrack to the 1972 movie of Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five, whose hero, Billy Pilgrim, had come unstuck in his chronology. The contrapuntal style is, simply, characterized by two or more melodies sounding simultaneously. Imagine groups of kindergartners singing Row, Row, Row Your Boat, each successive group beginning after boat. This is imitative counterpoint. If one group instead sings Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, that would be an example of free counterpoint. This expresses harmony, even as it highlights independence. Edward Said is perhaps best known as the author of Orientalism, the 1978 book that argues that Western scholarship about the Eastern world is inextricably tied to the imperialist societies who produced it. Said has been described as the figure of an exile that is torn between loyalties to one's nation and to the fellow humans whom the nation-state subjugates and often domesticates. In Reflections on Exile, he notes that the interplay between nationalism and exile is like Hegel's dialectic of servant and master, opposites informing and constituting each other. Syed argues in the essay that exilic consciousness affects not only the exiles who are actually fleeing poverty and persecution, but also those who do not feel at home in their own homes. This sounds something of a lament, but near the end of Syed's book, Culture and Imperialism, he cites Hugo St. Victor, a 12th century monk from Saxony. The person who finds his homeland sweet is still a tender beginner. He to whom every soil is as his native one is already strong but he is perfect to whom the entire world is as a foreign place. He goes on to explain that the strong or perfect person achieves independence and detachment by working through attachments, not by rejecting them. Today's guest is Timothy Brennan, professor of comparative literature, cultural studies, and English at the University of Minnesota. His books include At Home in the World, Cosmopolitanism Now, Wars of Position, The Cultural Politics of the Left and Right, and the new book, Places of Mind, A Life of Edward Said, an intellectual biography, published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. And we might say, following Said, following Hugo St. Victor, that the art of biography practices a form of exile. Tim Brennan opens the show with a sketch of the external facts of Edward Said's life. And now, Practicing Exile, on the life and work of Edward Said, on Interchange, on WFHB. He was born in Jerusalem in 1935, on November 1st, and he studied briefly in uh, Jerusalem a little bit later, but he largely grew up in Cairo. His father was a successful businessman. He lived in the Cairo of the British occupation uh, at the end of the Ottoman Empire and before the uh, Nasser Revolution. So he was kind of in Cairo right on the cusp. 
he uh, had his first intellectual encounters in Cairo in the form of, of practicing uh, music, uh, being a, uh, just studying actually to be a concert uh, performer of the piano. Uh, studied with a Polish uh, emigre uh, named uh, Ignaz Tigerman. And he uh, was shipped off after uh, living in Cairo for the f- first 15 years or so of his life to uh, the United States. He was an American citizen by virtue of his father having uh, been an American citizen, having uh, left the Middle East in uh, World War I to escape the Ottoman draft. So he came to the United States, never really having lived here as an American, studied in uh, the rural parts of Massachusetts uh, at a religious fundamentalist school, and then went on to Princeton, uh, where he still was thinking of becoming a concert performer. And, la- and then later, uh, after a year uh, of working in his father's business, to Harvard for graduate school. And it's only at that point in his life that he stopped wanting to become a, a medical missionary, a doctor, to become what he later became, a, a literature professor. His first job was at Columbia University. He never really left. When he arrived, he immediately joined that group of uh, New York intellectuals that have been written about so much in the sense that he was uh, writing in crossover magazines like Partisan Review and um, writing about literary theory in the New York Times, of all places. So he was uh, very conscious about being a public writer right from the beginning. He quickly shot to stardom within academia, got to know all of the leading lights, as it were, and uh, he was thought to be special right from the beginning. So he publishes a book on Conrad. He later publishes a book of literary theory that's really all about kind of a veiled study of what it's like to be a Levantine and always having to follow Europe's lead. The book is called Beginnings, but it's really about whether it's possible to uh, be original in imitation uh, or whether someone from the Levant, for example, or from the third world, if you will, is is forced to uh, copy the European model. So that's really what this book was, was largely about. He has always been political. Um, the story about Edward is often that he only became political by accident in 1967 uh, after the Naxa, so-called, right, the setback, which was the six-day war in which Israel began occupying Palestinian territory never to leave. But he actually had been political before that, writing anti-Cold War essays for the student newspaper in Princeton. But he, he really becomes concertedly organizationally political after 1967, has a friendship with Abu Luhod. He soon thereafter gets to know members of the PLO. He marries a woman who is uh, part of the Lebanese establishment. So in Beirut, he is uh, connected with all, all sorts of people, including members of the PLO who have just recently come into Beirut from Jordan, uh, where they used to have their offices and then they were forced out of Jordan. And so they went to Beirut. And so he gets to know all of these people, including Arafat, helping him write uh, his famous UN speech. Uh, Edward uh, then uh, writes the book that is his breakout book, uh, published in 1978, Orientalism. And uh, the rest is history. He publishes one book after the other. He changes the face of academic life. He opens the doors of the academy to um, non-white uh, scholars from the former colonies. He uh, helps institute curricular reforms so that uh, imperialism now is something that people study critically, opens up curricula also to non books of non-Western lit. So he's this combination of, 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 a, of an intellectual, um, a professor of literature, a media personality, and a musician, and of uh, the unofficial liaison between the U.S. government and the Palestinian leadership. I don't know how to sort of think about personalities that seem so large and so accomplished. Um, and at the same time in your book, you, you know, you make the point throughout and people you talk to make the point throughout that he was both uh, sure of himself and insecure. And it's hard to imagine a guy as accomplished as this being insecure. It's true. He really lived a tortured life. He, uh, 
you wouldn't know it unless you got to know him pretty well. But you know, he because he was so so charming and um, so voluble. He was uh, somebody who had a fantastic sense of humor. He would do he would imitate people's voices. He would rib you. Um, he was also though the kind of person who made you feel that you were special. I mean, he'd, he'd remember the names of your significant others and you know things that had happened in your life that you had forgotten. You know that kind of thing. So he he seemed so at ease, uh, but he. I think partly because he was so driven, um, but partly because he really did in every sense feel out of place. It wasn't just the idea of being an ethnic exile or a Palestinian in Islamophobic America. It was just also the fact that he didn't feel at home in every way, you know, um, psychologically, I think he was self-tortured. And I think he was also somebody who never felt that he was doing enough. So that's where the insecurity would come from, that he hadn't done enough. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Practicing Exile on the Life and Work of Edward Said with biographer Timothy Brennan. Said, a Palestinian-American born in Jerusalem, was one of the most influential literary scholars in the United States, transforming the academic discourse of researchers in literary theory, literary criticism, and Middle Eastern studies. And he was a public intellectual widely known for his work on the question of Palestine. Now, you, you talk about him as an intimate there uh, also, and, and you obviously knew him. Uh, so can you give us a bit of your relationship with him? Yeah, I, I uh, arrived at Columbia in 1980, and I think I was a little unusual probably among the students that he had in the sense that I had been doing political organizing for three years before that in Latino communities in New York, you know, selling newspapers in Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn and, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I entered as a a radical activist and somebody who had had this marvelous undergraduate training at Madison in which I was introduced to a lot of the figures that he was trying to introduce uh, into the academy. So we, we caught each other's attention or I, I think I think he, he noticed me in that way, but he, he probably didn't take me seriously, I think, at first because I, I didn't know the proper Ivy League etiquette, I guess. And, and maybe he found that a little bit disarming. We got to know one another. I asked him to be my advisor he was. Uh, I wrote my dissertation under him. I went and got a job elsewhere. And so for some period there, I, I was out of touch. I moved back to New York though after just a couple of years of being out and we took up again. Um, he would ask me to teach his classes um, when he was out of town from time to time. Um, I would go over to his house from time to time and drink scotch with him and that sort of thing. So I did know him. I knew him very well. And personally, he even asked me at right towards the end of his life, to write a response to Christopher Hitchens, who had written a scurrilous piece about Orientalism in uh, the Atlantic. So that, that was kind of the nature of a relationship. But, you know, Edward knew thousands of people intimately that way, right? I, I, I wasn't the kind of special friend that perhaps Iqbal Ahmad was, you know, or um, uh, somebody like uh, Fred Dupee was. But uh, we certainly knew each other really, really, really well. We're going to lunch together and that kind of thing. Uh, had you been working on the biography for uh, a while, uh, Tim, or was that part of your relationship with him as well? Did you have the sense that you would do this kind of thing? or Not not at all. <laughs> not at all. I mean, I, I write about lots of different things, but I had written about Edward over the years, maybe about 13 different essays, including some that I wrote when he was still alive. I think that the family probably liked what they read. Uh, I'd also spoken publicly about Edward a couple of times, and I think that they thought that I was the kind of guy that was partly because of when I knew him, but also how I wrote about him that could could do a biography. So I didn't ask anybody to write this biography. I was actually called up by Edward's former literary agent, and now mine, 
Andrew Wiley in New York, and he asked me, he said that people in the New York publishing world were interested in an intellectual biography and that he had heard I was the one to do it. Uh, was I interested? So I had to think about it because I was going to have to drop everything to do it. And I thought it would be, number one, a terrific challenge. Uh, number two, an opportunity to write for a different kind of audience. But number three, I, I cared about his legacy. So I thought that, you know, I, I wanted to tell that story, you know. You called it an intellectual biography, and the book does track through his uh, publications. So that was the intention uh, from the outset to focus on the thinking uh, rather than the life per se. Well, I think it's both. I think that there's a lot of personal drama and color and, uh, you know, portraiture and uh, anecdote in in the book. It's it's all through the book, particularly in the first three to four uh, chapters where there's nothing to talk about but his life. Um, but he, he was an intellectual and he was somebody who, moreover, wanted very much to campaign on behalf of the figure of the public intellectual. So the tightly knit connection between what he was studying in the seminar room and what he was able to perform in public as a political figure and media celebrity is something that, number one, journalists and area studies specialists won't grant. And, and number two, uh, a key uh, aspect of the way he saw himself and what he tried to do. So I think it's, it was really important to me to make that connection and to show how they were connected. I always knew that I wanted this book to have a lot of his personal character and personality and encounters with others uh, to be brought alive. And I think I do that. But I did want the narrative arc to be the drama of his ideas. Because I, I think that they're very important in the sense that he almost single-handedly changed the conversation about Israel and Palestine, making it possible and even popular in some ways to criticize Zionism. But he brought the humanities to the center of public life, and he created a figure of the intellectual and showed the, the, the political importance of uh, intellectuals who were humanists who could tell a different story, right? Who could create a, a different agenda with the power of their ideas. That made his lifelong argument, which was also what he embodied uh, as a person, the key thing to tell. So I was very conscious about it. It was, first of all, billed to me as an intellectual biography, and that's what I, I, I tried, to, tried to do. It's time for a break, and as indicated at the top of the show, we'll be listening to another Glenn Gould selection for the Slaughterhouse-Five movie soundtrack. This is the first movement of Bach's Concerto for Piano and Orchestra No. 5 in F minor. Edward Said said of Gould that his virtuosity was not designed simply to impress and ultimately alienate the listener, spectator, but rather to draw the audience in by provocation, the dislocation of expectation, and the creation of new kinds of thinking based in large measure on his reading of Bach's music. Stay with us for more Interchange on WFHB. Thank you. 
back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Practicing Exile with Timothy Brennan, author of a new intellectual biography on literary scholar and public intellectual Edward Said, called Places of Mind, which plays on the title of Said's memoir, Out of Place. We begin this segment with Said's important influence on university humanities scholarship and the reaction against it, which continues to grow, aided by corporate funding of antagonistic political groups. It feels like there, there's been a concerted effort in the time since his death, but pr- I'm sure before it, obviously, you mentioned a few of these sort of cultural antagonisms like uh, Bill Bennett's book on uh, virtue. And there's always been this um, attack on the humanities in a sense. Um, and, you know, it's, a, I think, a big part of your work as well, but also, you know, what makes this interesting and important. He seems unique to me. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, I, I don't think he's he's unique, except in the sense that he did this all at such a high level and with such fabulous success. I mean, he changed the face of institutions, you know, he initiated new fields of study. And uh, that isn't something that most intellectuals who are public intellectuals have pulled off. But no, I think that the, the kind of intellectual that he uh, both wanted to articulate the importance of and that he himself was, you know, that is a broad ranging intellectual who's not uh, deterred by uh, specialists who tell him he can't venture into commenting on economics or imperial policy because they're not his field. You know, that that kind of argument that would be the argument of the pundit on the news shows that's there to silence everyone else. He um, is talking about the humanist intellectual as broad ranging, as general in his or her appetites, who on the basis of that generality is able to make broad connections that allow for a kind of political analysis that is impossible uh, for specialists and is impossible within that imperious division of labor that one finds within a university, right, where knowledge is divided up into these little categories. And he fought for that kind of outward turning, right, to be worldly in one's appetites and sentiments, to participate, to not abdicate your political responsibilities and intellectual. And there's lots of people out there who are doing that kind of thing now. I, I, I don't think that it's it's uh, the case at all that he's unique in this desire or, or even um, in, in the uh, sense of having uh, successes, uh, getting um, people in power, policymakers, to, to notice. What is true, though, is that the success he had in making the humanities meaningful and, and maybe even a little dangerous to those in power because of its uh, critical force has led to a reaction, uh, not only on the part of uh, policymakers, uh, legislatures, but also uh, university administrations, and to a certain degree uh, within sort of conservative counter-movements among the professoriate itself, so that we have today a number of attempts to defund the humanities, to marginalize the humanities, to talk students out of majoring in the humanities on spurious grounds. And um, they also want to create a and make popular a sort of post-critical or anti-critical world, which is all about... Uh, the lack of debate and lack of, uh, of contestation, which is so yesterday, you know, according to some people in the humanities, and instead to uh, kind of indulge in the aesthetic artifact. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a counterforce to what he did, and I think that's, a directly, that's directly related to his former success. They're trying to undo the world that Saeed successfully created. 
sometimes when I do work for the show, I, I'll go down little rabbit holes. Things like, uh, you know, Republican political clubs, like the uh, National Federation of Pachyderm Clubs. Uh, when you start to, like, investigate that kind of thing, it's a weird canvas that has spread over everything in some ways to me. And again, it may not be new. It's just that I've never paid much attention to it, right? So, you know, you find people, presidents of these pachyderm clubs who are, you know, former CIA, you know, former de Defense Department, for, you know, all these people who are, in, you know, like presidents of pachyderm clubs. And there's a part of me, I guess, and I'm, I'm why I'm belaboring this point, I guess, is, is to say there's like a singular focus in that world. And whereas you and I know there's, you know, there's there's not a singular focus. We can say humanities, you know, we can say, uh, you know, broad ranging. We can talk about the, you know, the ways in which we want to, you know, be a more expansive beings and think better and think well and, and, and care about other people in this world. But there is the other thing that's happening and has happened, uh, you know, for a long time. And, and it's that that scares me sometimes, or I would want to be able to put, uh, to put Saeed up, uh, up against that, you know, uh, and, and to say, you know, here's how we combat it, but it's so broadly in the culture, but not one that's talked about really. Like we, people might talk about this book and talk about Said and talk about him as a focal point. Um, but we don't talk about pachyderm clubs. You know, we don't talk about the sort of insidious nature of that kind of ideology that's constantly always present and, and working its way into all communities. Whereas this seems like something, you know, out here on, uh, on some other place. I want to be able to put your book in, in this position where it, it helps us combat pachyderm clubs, right? Uh, do you, do you, I mean, do you understand what I'm like, I'm struggling against here to try to understand how we do better to combat pachyderm clubs. Um, if I'm understanding you, you're talking about a kind of a fanatical single issue kind of organization that okay. is, uh, assured of its own certainties and, uh, wants to indoctrinate those who join them to, have this singular focus as opposed to this broad ranging intellect that I was describing a minute ago. That's one thing I'm hearing. The other thing I'm hearing is a certain complicity with people who have been involved in uh, the um, forces of state uh, before who have a, an agenda, which is a, an explicitly political agenda to reinforce the status quo or to uh, make sure that the corporate life goes on unbothered by criticism. And uh, there's a kind of wedding of these two things, the singular focus and the, uh, how could you say, the uh, state or corporate complicity. And, and I think that it is, in fact, a formidable array of opponents of this type. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Practicing Exile on the Life and Work of Edward Said with biographer Timothy Brennan. Said, a Palestinian-American born in Jerusalem, was one of the most influential literary scholars in the United States, transforming the academic discourse of researchers in literary theory, literary criticism, and Middle Eastern studies. And he was a public intellectual widely known for his work on the question of Palestine. There's a, a wonderful study recently done by Gabriel Rockhill, which is about how the attack on the great figure of the public intellectual in France, represented by Jean-Paul Sartre, that was, uh, you know, kind of enacted and performed by Michel Foucault, who in most cases today is thought of as a kind of a liberatory intellectual, as a, as a, as a rebel, a sort of a, somebody who brought Marxism, as it were, up to date. And yet there's many things that he did and stood for, that is Foucault, that you could call right-wing. 
what Rockhill was trying to say is that the dissident and insurgent associations with the attack on Jean-Paul Sartre, initiated by Foucault, was something that the CIA absolutely loved and applauded. There's actually um, active involvement in promoting the ideas of Foucault, or at least the anti-Sartre aspects of Foucault, in order to bring down the notion of a public intellectual who, by the force of his intellect and by the breadth of his knowledge, and by his being completely untainted by material interests, could become a clarion and could become a, an effective critical force to show what was wrong and amiss in uh, the powers that be. And so to, to bring down the figure of the intellectual was, from the conservative point of view, represented by the CIA, an important project. So there's lots of studies of this sort, and there's a book, in fact, that um, Said, when he was alive, would always cite by Carol Gruber called Mars and Minerva, which was all about the complicity between certain academic movements in the World War I era and the war machine. So th this kind of argument about the complicity that takes place either consciously or unconsciously within intellectual movements is one that um, Syed frequently talked about. And I think it, it, it is, in fact, the case that, in, uh, for my money, um, the kind of anti-critical or post-critical schools in the humanities they're referred to, or uh, to take another example, the digital humanities, are, are ways of uh, blunting the critical force of what it means to be a humanist intellectual. And they're, they're quite conscious in that. And I think insofar as they are, they're quite conservative. In this last year or last year and a half or so, we've seen two enormous biographies, one on Sylvia Plath and one on Philip Roth. Both of those are close to a thousand pages long. So, you know, there's obviously a different, maybe a different approach happening in those particular books. But I don't think of either of those people, uh, artists, um, as having much to say politically or something that is directly political. Um, and yet, their lives seem to be um, the life itself seems to have some interest to people. Is there is there a way in which to distinguish that kind of biography or that kind of um, of you know uh, I guess uh, again I'll just say artist that kind of writer uh, as opposed to someone like Said. A biography of that sort could have been written about Edward. It was one I certainly didn't want to write. I was explicitly against bringing in all of the scandals uh, and. Peccadillos. Uh, that wasn't my brief. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to get into that. But I think that there's a certain boredom in those long biographies, to be frank. There's a highly repetitive nature of them, first of all, and they're, they're interested in unloading, if I could, right? Like the, the cartloads of information that they found from correspondence or from conversations with others or from the archive. You know, you can just can dump it, you know, onto the page. And I, I find a lot of that, not only in the two that you mentioned, but the Susan Sontag biography, which is equally long, uh, that came out recently, about a year or two ago. Edward lived a really, really colorful life. And there's lots of anecdotes that could be told about his encounters with other people, the, the nature of his argumentation with people, the conference or two that he would find himself at and the kind of way that he would handle himself there and the way he would interact with people. You know, it, it, it would be possible to write that, but it would be, I think, repeating the kind of thing that is found in the character studies that are in the book already. And it, it trivializes, in a, in a way, I think, the force of what he was arguing as an intellectual and, and what, what an intellectual does and how they perform, I think. So I, I think that... Uh, you know, <laughs> there was a, a recent very positive review of, of my book that did, in fact, uh, contrast it to the recent Roth book, which 
this guy said was primarily interested in uh, moving from one blowjob to another, right? And I think it, that would, in in uh, a nutshell, be the kind of thing that I think is the contrast at work here. I guess I was trying to point to the idea that my thinking in considering uh, Saeed's work is that I think of his work, right? And if I think of Philip Roth's books, I think of his books, and then, but because they're metafictional in a lot of ways, or they do play with biography themselves, and then Roth himself becomes a center of celebrity culture in a lot of ways. Um, even if we admit to his strength and power as a stylist, um, we're still ask we still ask ourselves what what he's on about. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What, what's interesting here, though, is that you know Edward formed really close relationships with uh, a number of novelists, and uh, I mean two two Nobel Prize winning novelists, um, Kenzaburo Oe, uh, the Japanese novelist, and Nadine Gordimer from South Africa, were very very big fans of Edward and wrote him long and intimate correspondence and uh, really kind of treated him like their guru and they were acolytes. You know, that's how they wrote to him. But he also was very close friends with Roth. Not really close friends. I shouldn't shouldn't say that. But they were in correspondence with one another. And Edward didn't read a lot of or appreciate very much contemporary fiction. But he did read Roth and really liked Roth and uh, uh, reviewed his books, particularly The Counter Life, which is the story of a father's relationship with his radical daughter. Um, so he just really liked Roth. It's funny that uh, this would be coming up in this context. <laughs> well, uh, I think that um, it's American Pastoral that he has that particular relationship. Oh, yes. Uh, thank you. Yeah, you're right. It's time for another break. This is the first movement of Bach's Keyboard Concerto Number no. 3 in D Major, performed by Glenn Gould and included in the Slaughterhouse-Five movie soundtrack from 1972. To quote Edward Said, In almost every way, Gould did not belong whether as a son, citizen, member of the community of pianists, musician, or thinker. Everything about him bespoke the alienated detachment of a man making his abode, if he had one, in his performances rather than in a conventional dwelling. The drama of Gould's virtuosic achievement is that his performances were conveyed as an argument for a particular type of statement, which was nothing less than an argument about continuity, rational intelligence, and aesthetic beauty in an age of specialized, anti-human atomization. Stay with us for more on Edward Said and Orientalism when Interchange returns. Back to Interchange on WFHB. Timothy Brennan is our guest. He's the author of a new intellectual biography of Edward Said called Places of Mind. In what follows, we'll look at some key works of Edward Said, notably the book that catapulted him into national and international prominence, Orientalism, 
published in 1978. We'll also hear about two Marxist theorists who influenced Said's political and philosophical thinking. Let's move into his books, obviously, uh, uh, the things that uh, I think we both think matter. So first, uh, as the book tracks the books as they come out, uh, obviously it does focus on particular titles. Uh, so these become so the kind of essential works of Said's working life, right? Uh, beginnings, you already mentioned, or Orientalism, you mentioned. Um, the World, the Text, and the Critic is the next one, I think, that's most important after that. You call The World, the Text, and the Critic is uh, his boldest, most radical, and most finely written book. I mean, for a number of reasons, the ones that most people know would be the ones that would be the most important. I mean, Orientalism is that kind of book, uh, particularly because it does so much more than a lot of people associate it with, which would probably be the... Uh, pain and suffering caused by the fantasy projection of the Western Academy uh, onto the uh, Oriental other, uh, Oriental here meaning the uh, Arab or Islamic Near East. So, so this would be what most people associate with the book, but the book is really much more interesting in some ways. Uh, there is that dimension, but he's also not just criticizing Orientalists. He's saying that these, these humanist intellectuals who are interested in the minutiae of language who study etymologies and uh, pore over classical texts and foreign languages that they've mastered. You know, these polylingual uh, specialists are ones that uh, created this amazing drama of the human imagination that was uh, able to capture the kind of narrative interest of power and was therefore a kind of proof positive that even humanist intellectuals could have a political uh, saliency and that they could uh, affect uh, the way that the world thought because of the, the stories that they told. So in a way, he is uh, not just criticizing fantasy projections, but he's sort of apprenticing at the feet of these great intellectuals and saying, I want to learn how they did this. How did they create the, these works of mass density and referential power, as he puts it? So there's there's that whole side of it. Uh, side of it. And then there's the side also that um, is an argument on behalf of the power of ideas themselves, that a lot of the action when it comes to politics is not in political economy, but it, it, it is in the field of representation, which is to say the rendering of a reality in words. This bestseller, you know, this thing that kind of shook the world, that uh, got historians and geographers and you know, sociologists and so on to, to read it and to learn from it and in many ways to copy from it. That book with such a reach was really founded on this notion that was the, uh, you know, the, the, the obsession of people in literary theory, which is the problem of representation. This would be why Orientalism, I think, is important. So to me, yeah, his, his masterpiece is the collection of essays uh, called The World, the Text, and the Critic, partly because it is a, a critique of the university. And it's a, a, a kind of impassioned call. And he really lets it all hang out here. It's a very polemical book, which is, I think, Edward at his best. It's a, a call to recognize the abdication that has gone on within the humanities, in the university, in the age of Reagan, that people are not addressing public issues, that they have settled for an arcane literary theory that's thinking of itself as being insurrectionary and dissident. And it rips the, the heart out of any meaningful political program. So partly it's because of the language that is so uncompromising. Partly it's because he knows the university so well. Partly because it's the early days of the age of Reagan. It was published in 1983. 
And so it's, um, there's an urgency to it. It's a remarkable record. And I think what makes it so interesting, too, is that this book actually grew out of an earlier study on uh, Jonathan Swift, a very conservative figure politically, a Tory, a monarchist, but one who uh, was very much the emblem of the creative writer who also was involved in governmental politics and had official positions and was a man of action. So this was you know, kind of the person he was emulating in the early stages of writing this book. And somehow over the years, it, it you know, transmogrified in, in, into this, into this critique of his own home, as it were, in the university. I, you note a few people that, that were clearly influential in his own thinking. Uh, do you want to say anything about that, the, the ways that certain, certain other authors had influenced him? He, he'd always, uh, to kind of make the long story short, was always attracted to Marxism and Marxists without ever becoming one. So many of the leading intellectuals in his firmament, like Georg Lukács, right, the Hungarian Marxist who was a member of the Communist Party and who was perhaps the most influential philosopher and critic on the left in Europe uh, in the early 20th century, uh, somebody who influenced just about everybody, including philosophers on the political right like Heidegger, and uh, later uh, Marxist Tegelian intellectuals like Theodore Adorno, another person who Edward really had held in high esteem. So Lukács is uh, a literary critic who is also uh, a political analyst and a Marxist, and somebody that Edward always learned a great deal from and held up. The only person that could really rival him uh, in Edward's affections in this respect would have been uh, Antonio Gramsci, right? A Catholic revolutionary in a, a century that uh, had a number of brilliant Jewish Marxists. So he's kind of an interesting character who uh, comes from the Italian uh, South, the Meridionale, as they call it, and, and so was thought to be racially inferior in the north of Italy, and uh, still divided Italy. And so he becomes this uh, character who Edward uh, also uh, promotes. So Ed Edward is, throughout his life, kind of acting as a an attorney, as it were, right, uh, for uh, figures like these who are Marxist and on those grounds alone in the kind of inherently anti-communist common sense of the United States uh, intellectual world, he's trying to bring them into the canon and trying to convince people that these people are desperately important to know about and to learn from. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Practicing Exile on the Life and Work of Edward Said with biographer Timothy Brennan. Said, a Palestinian-American born in Jerusalem, was one of the most influential literary scholars in the United States, transforming the academic discourse of researchers in literary theory, literary criticism, and Middle Eastern studies. And he was a public intellectual widely known for his work on the question of Palestine. How does Conrad fit in here, Tim? You know, Edward was always attracted by people that he didn't really like. And I think that he really disliked Conrad intensely. He thought that Conrad was an imperialist thinker. He certainly was a misanthrope. He was somebody who, uh, you know, reminded him of uh, the racists in Lebanon who were oriented towards the West, who were Christians, who hated Islam, right? Because Conrad was the person who came from Poland, who really despised pan-Slavism and, and hated the Russians and uh, was oriented entirely towards France. So what Conrad actually represents in his portrayal of human foibles is something that Edward deeply abreacts to. Uh, but Conrad was, after all, somebody who came from one language group and ethnicity and lived for the most of his life in another. 
achieving complete fluency in it. And so Edward could identify with that. But I think more than anything, this is what comes out in Edward's first book, which is on Joseph Conrad. What Conrad was able to do is create his authorial persona by creating a series of masks. So this self-invention in order to hide from those around you what your real feelings are is what I think he sees in Conrad and identifies with and, 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 and tries to emulate. And this first book of his, although it's written about Conrad's short fiction and his letters, and in other words, that side of, of Conrad that has to do with spoken language and direct address and interpersonal communication rather than the highly architecturally complex novels that he wrote, like Nostromo, that he's, he's really writing that book in code in a way. And he's, he's trying to bring notions that he's reading about in um, continental theory, you know, of, of, of being and becoming and existence, you know, existential, existentialist ideas. And he's, he's pouring that into this book, which is kind of uh, announcing that he, Edward, like Conrad, is creating a persona for himself that involves wearing masks. Part of Orientalism as a major work that we we want to think about and that sort of um, centers uh, Saeed's career and what people generally probably attach to him or remember him as uh, the, the author of. This is about, you know, sort of creating images or representing other people as well. And in, in, I guess it has an interesting uh, correlation to this idea in general, like representation of self, rep representation of uh, nations, representation of whole other people. And all from a particular perspective, right? So in Orientalism, the idea is that the so-called Western uh, academics or Western um, governments, Western thinkers are the ones who get to define what other people are and how they act and behave and how to govern them even is, is part of how you, know, you have to sort of project the kind of person or persons these people are in order to govern them properly. So there, there is definitely a, a relationship to that, that idea of, you know, how we're, we're framing everything in this particular way. You, are, you already talked about narratives and stories, right? And how these stories have power in our personal lives as well as uh, obviously in our, our political lives as well. Uh, is Orientalism so much about the problems of a dominating cultural perspective? Is that, is that a, an okay way to say that? Or do you want to do, do better than that? I mean, you know, the, the Near East, right? The Middle East is responsible for preserving, you know, much of the thought of antiquity. And so it had, it had hit its peak uh, intellectually and, and sort of as a, a political, military and cultural force much earlier, you could say, than, than Europe did. So the, the civilizational greatness of Arab and Muslim Near East is recognized by Europe. And of course, it's contiguous with Europe. This isn't the Far East. This is right next door. This is on the Mediterranean, as it were, right? It's just, and, and it's partly there's like a an inverse relationship there, as Edward sees it, between the, the closeness, nearness, geographically speaking, of Europe and the Near East and the, the consequent need for Europe to other that place on a number of grounds. But the one that he is most interested in is the one that happens when the Orientalist scholar within Europe doesn't create a, a fissure or barrier between Europe and the Near East by merely condemning that culture as being stagnant or backward or, or lecherous uh, uh, or other calumnies of that sort, but that they overly praise it. It becomes um, something that the Oriental scholar is ecstatic about, but only in one way, that is by imprisoning Near Eastern culture in the 
classics of its own past. So the relationship that's established by the Orientalist to the Near East is textual, you know. And and the only thing that really matters are these great texts that were written in the past that for the Orientalist uh, perfectly captures and defines the essence of what it means to be a, an Arab or a Muslim. And all kinds of general generalizations then flow from the structure of the Arabic language and the beauty of Arabic poetry and the you know wonderful uh, classics that had been written in the Middle Ages, such that one could no longer think of the people in this region as being like us, you know, living and breathing and being involved with the travails of modernity and, uh, you know, all of the things that would, would humanize them and, and, and create uh, alliances. So it's about textuality. And it's trying to say that, there, that there's too great a textual emphasis in the Orientalists. There's not enough lived conversation correspondence between us. And so it's it's kind of um, among all of the other dimensions of this wonderful book, Orientalism, there's this one too, which is a cautionary tale against scholars who develop a, a purely textual relationship to their object and stop thinking about the worldliness of the present. It's time for our final break. This is Variation 25 of Glenn Gould's 1981 recording of Bach's Goldberg Variations. And again, a quote from Edward Said on Gould. There is no way of denying that from the moment Gould's recording of the Goldberg Variations appeared, a genuinely new phase in the history of virtuosity began. A totally unanticipated talent aggressively challenged the place and passive audience that has learned to sit back and wait to be served up a short evening's fare like diners in a good restaurant. When we return, Edward Said and the question of Palestine. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. For our final segment with Timothy Brennan about his intellectual biography of Edward Said, we'll turn to Said's involvement with the PLO and his work on the question of Palestine. The next book you talked about or the book you, you noted to be what you find um, maybe his best book, The World, The Text, and The Critic, does then that 
extend this particular argument that you're making here in terms of, you know, that the text is somehow uh, part of the problem or the way that we focus on these texts and then narrate what these texts do or say or, or how they operate in the world. Text becomes the issue here as well. Yeah, um, that's one one line of argument in the book, but there's another, and that is um, secularity, right, uh, which is a big theme in Edward's work generally. So he, he's kind of looking at the uh, obsessive, even fanatical uh, devotion to literary theory in the early 1980s in the Academy, and he's going, there's something quasi-religious about this, right? There's, there's a, a very small group of thinkers who are looked to, to, you know, answer all questions, right? There's a, a hunt for the skeleton key that will open all locks, right? And it's sort of like the pet concepts that are circulating within literary theory circles are the ones that keep being applied and reapplied in every single situation. And so that there's, there's this uncritical mantra-like relationship that people have to the, you know, the, the Derrida's of the, of the world, for example. And, and so they're, they're being quoted as though one was quoting scripture. And he, he finds this disturbingly similar to the resurgence of the new Christian right in the same years. Without explicitly saying that the one is like the other, he fills the book with uh, reprimands of various sorts uh, to allow us to understand what's wrong with religious modes of thinking. You know, there's, there's two forms of human community uh, that are created on, on different principles, according to Ibn Khaldun, who I mentioned before, this Maghrebian scholar. He has this idea called asriya, which is group thinking. And so Edward is, is hammering away at that in this book, The World, the Text, and the Critic. What group thinking, on, on, on what basis do people form a community? And of course, one of them is bloodlines, right? That you're, you're a member of my family, and that's what matters to me more than anything. If you're one of us, right? If you're an American, or if you're Jewish, or you know, if you're a Muslim, or if you're whatever, you have your primary fealty to that kind of person, part of the tribe, right? That's one way. The other way would be through affiliation, not affiliation, which would be shared outlooks on the world, you know, a shared program for what you want the world to become, that kind of thing. And of course, the latter seems much more enlightened and much more uh, salutary. And, and normally that would be the case. But one of the points that Edward makes, and it's kind of a surprise, is he doesn't simply settle for that difference between affiliation, right, uh, based on blood or tribe and affiliation based on ideas. He's trying to say that uh, certain types of affiliation can be just as dogmatic and just as uh, familial in the bad sense as affiliation itself. And that is what he's on guard against. He, he hated comprehensive systems of thought that tried to cover every aspect. He wanted there to be more of an open-endedness and unresolved quality to inquiry. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Practicing Exile on the Life and Work of Edward Said with biographer Timothy Brennan. Said, a Palestinian-American born in Jerusalem, was one of the most influential literary scholars in the United States, transforming the academic discourse of researchers in literary theory, literary criticism, and Middle Eastern studies. And he was a public intellectual widely known for his work on the question of Palestine. I wanted to talk about the PLO in Palestine. I wasn't quite sure how to do it. There's a part of me that literally remembers the things that the popular press or the media, you know, brings to mind about Said, and they're they're nothing to do with his actual work, right? But but with this position uh, with the PLO and and on Palestine, and you know, taking up that position and and being sort of pilloried on the right, but in the mainstream as well, obviously for for being 
you know, a, something of a, not even a traitor because he wouldn't have been allowed to be an American, even though he was one. Right. right? So, you know, those, those are the things that pop into my head when I think about it. And, you know, and how do we talk about the one public intellectual that becomes a kind of one, uh, not a one note because it's not, it's not who he is. Right. But, but that most of us may have only seen as having one note. And you mentioned, you mentioned Hitchens. I assume that Hitchens attack is, on that one note aspect. Yeah, I'm re- reluctant to give any more play to Hitchens. That was a, 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 a dishonest and, and, and actually disloyal because he, he published this horrible, pretentious also a piece uh, when Edward was on his deathbed and he knew it. Um, but the one note idea. Okay, so the thing that I think that is partly responsible for Edward's reach and his success, his being so widely translated and so deeply loved by so many people is that he went to great lengths not to express himself only in one note. So he, he of course, had these many hats that he wore and these many uh, sides to his uh, intellectual interests and aesthetic interests. So there's, of course, the, the musical side of Edward, which came out more and more as uh, the political situation became more and more desperate and hopeless. There's that. So he would frequently write musical reviews. He'd write on opera. You know, he'd write about his, his love for this or that performer and with an enormous amount of expertise. I mean, you know, Daniel Barenboim said that Edward knew everything about music, more even than the people that he had uh, collaborated with in his long career as a conductor and pianist. There's that side of him, which kind of, you know, throws those who want to think of Edward in only one note, you know, off guard. They can see that he has many arrows in his quiver, as it were, right? So there's that. The experimenting with different genres. He didn't only write autobiography, you know, but he wrote uh, character studies of others. He wrote polemics. He he wrote fiction. He, you know, he did go out of his way to express himself in different modes. Although he never published the novels that he was working on, he did, in fact, achieve a kind of poetic form of expression in prose in his photo text collage, collage with Jean Moore, after the last sky, you know, these beautiful kind of poetic evocations that he wrote in prose in response to these photographs of Palestinians in the occupied territories, which at the time, Edward couldn't go personally to see, he couldn't be there. So it's this wonderful book about what it's like to be inauthentic, you know, to be separated uh, by force of law from where you would like to be and what you'd like to know more about. And so to completely have uh, only this relationship to it through a photo. I would say that the coming together of the literary critic and the teacher of, of novels uh, and the political figure uh, came about only through these these media, right? These these intermediate forms of expression that all, all kind of contribute to the idea that he had these different ways of, of being and that showed different sides of his character. So it was impossible, I think, for those who paid any attention to think of him as only being, you know, kind of uh, fixated on one thing, which was the independence of a Palestine. Are there particular essays that you think are uh, that encapsulate him better than others? There's a, a couple of uh, brilliant ones uh, that, that are standalone essays that are really good. I think traveling theory would be a wonderful one. I think um, the politics of knowledge would be uh, an excellent one. I think um, Arab fiction after 1948 would be a terrific one. Uh, and then there's a, a, a one that has a kind of a funny title, but it's it's really uh, Edward and his element. It's called uh, Opponents, Audiences, Constituencies, and Community. Those are just off the top of my head. I, the fact of the matter is, is that, like I said, he wrote in so many different modes that 
I would love it for people to pick up a volume of the essays that he wrote for an Arab audience uh, in that are collected in the end of the peace process. Read through that book and, and read the different kinds of essays that he wrote in there. It's such a, a wonderful movement from reminiscences of uh, meeting his son in Palestine, where he had gone to study for a year. There, there's that uh, kind of essay. There's essays on uh, literary figures that you know have nothing to do with with Palestine, but somehow it, it's it's worked into his address to an Arab audience. I would just say that I was surprised and impressed at how moved I was, not only by the variety of kinds of essay I can find in that volume, but also the patience with which he is going over the issues that he's been trying to get people to listen to, you know, for his whole career. And without any self-quotation or repetition, he finds a new angle, you know, a new way to go about explaining the same things with the the same array of, of, of evidence and uh, the same uh, persuasive power. It's, it's quite something to behold. That's our show. We'll close with a final performance by Glenn Gould. This is the third movement of Bach's Keyboard Concerto No. 3 in D major. To quote Edward Said, Gould's work in its entirety, one mustn't forget that he wrote prolifically, produced radio documentaries, and stage-managed his own video recordings, furnishes an example of the virtuoso purposefully going beyond the narrow confines of performance and display into a discursive realm where performance and demonstration constitute an argument about intellectual liberation and critique. Again, Tim Brennan's new biography of Edward Said is Places of Mine, published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Brennan has appeared on Interchange in the past to discuss the academic left and post-humanism. You'll find a link to it in the web posting for this show. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. The Jazz Menagerie is up next. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening.